Welcome to the Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. Over the last year and a half, a number of states have changed the choice landscape by enacting new universal education savings accounts, or ESAs. What are these programs? How do they work? How do they affect the choice landscape more broadly? And what will it take for them to succeed? To discuss these questions and more, I invited Mike McShane onto the podcast. Mike McShane is the Director of National Research at EdChoice and the author and editor of a number of books on education policy. And for listeners who are or who know undergraduates interested in education policy, this June, Mike will be teaching a class on education reform at AEI's Summer Honors Program, a fully funded one-week seminar here in D.C. For more information on how to apply, you can check the show notes. Mike McShane. Welcome to the report card. Hi, Nat. Thanks for having me. So, Mike, I've been tracking a bunch of things over the pandemic, right? School closures and masks and all this other stuff. One thing I really have not done a good job keeping up with is expansion and private school choice. But I think there has been something that I've been missing. So help me out here, mostly in the form of ESAs. But what have we seen on the private school choice front in America in this pandemic era? Well, look, first, I think you deserve a great deal of credit. The tracking that you did on school openings and closings, very challenging. Um, that was yeoman's work that was actually super helpful and I think really informed a lot of conversations that were super data free. <laughs> that was great. And the work that you've been doing on chronic absenteeism is fantastic. Everyone should be checking all of this stuff out. So before I get into any of the stuff, before I start talking my brief, I have to give big thumbs up to you and, and the great team at AEI. Thank you, Mike. Uh, enough of that. that. Enough of that. Flattery will <laughs> get you nowhere. See, this is the thing. I know. <laughs> I knew it wouldn't. I knew it wouldn't. But I was gonna. I was gonna sit anyway. So look. So we at EdChoice every year put out this um, volume called the ABCs of School Choice. It's like the physician's desk reference of every school choice program that exists in America. And so speaking exactly to your question of this growth, I will. I will happily quote from it here where this was just in the year 2023, policymakers in 40 states debated 111 educational choice bills, 79% of which related to ESAs. As the months ticked by, a total of seven states enacted new choice programs and 10 expanded ones already in operation. As of this writing, which is about a month or two ago, um, eight states have joined Arizona and West Virginia in offering all students choice. So if you're interested in this list of states, it is if we're going kind of east to west, Florida, North Carolina, West Virginia, Ohio, Indiana, Arkansas, Iowa, Oklahoma, Arizona, and Utah. All of them have either universal or near universal private school choice programs as of today. Okay. So that's a big list, right? A lot of bills, but also a lot of big time programs. How does this year compare with the second best growth spurt for private school choice? Well, I can tell you, I, I went back in uh, to the 2019 ABCs of school choice. So the publication we put out, same version five years ago. Um, and I can tell you, well, before I do that, I left out one detail from the 2024, the most recent one we see in America, there are now 80 private school choice programs enrolling 982,000 students. 
Now, again, a lot of these new programs um, didn't have a chance to really ramp up this year. They, they were passed as laws, but they enrolled. But at least that baseline number, 80 programs, 982,000 students. Five years ago, in the 2019 ABCs of School Choice, there were 65 programs enrolling 274,938 students. So what we've seen, it's sort of an interesting way of looking at those numbers, that the number of students enrolled has roughly tripled. Actually, more than more than triple, yeah, almost, quad, almost quadrupled. quadrupled. Yeah, checking my math. Obviously, as soon as I came, uh, in my mouth, I'll I was do like, it. I didn't. Uh, then that's the math guy here. Um, but but what was interesting was to go that the number of programs did not sort of increase commensurately. There were already sixty five programs in twenty nineteen. There's only eighty. I shouldn't say only eighty, but there's just been a growth of fifteen programs in that time period. But the breadth of these programs, the depth of these programs, the much broader eligibility of these programs, the greater levels of funding for these programs have allowed some of those that were already in existence to grow and some of these new, much larger programs to get instituted. So, Mike, you rattled off a list of, I think, eight states in addition to Arizona and Florida. And I don't know if you call Arizona a red state or not, because I'm not super up on my state by state political classifications, but by and large, sound like a list of red states. Uh, that may not come as a surprise to anybody, but is it starkly a red state, blue state divide on the progress of school choice? That's a tough one. I don't know if starkly is the best because some of these are kind of purplish states or, or, or states that at least when some of these programs started were more purple. I mean, I think like when the Florida, the Florida programs have been in existence for a long time when when I think Florida was a bit more of a competitive state. Obviously, North Carolina is kind of swinging back and forth on on these things. Arizona is swinging back and forth on these things. Ohio swings back and forth on a lot of these things. So I would say it's it would be crazy not to say that it's it's not a predominantly red state thing. Um, but especially when a lot of these programs started, um, because some of these states, the, the, the big growth has been expansions of things that were already happening. So very in very few of these states were these sort of out of nowhere, we just started with a massive universal program. In most of these states, they've had smaller things that existed over time. And this was really just either a new program was created building on that more momentum or just a new uh, or, or existing programs were just massively expanded. Yeah. And. Now, before we get too far ahead here, let's go back a little bit to basics, because I imagine there's some listeners who would be like, well, these are voucher programs, right? We all know what voucher programs are, but vouchers are sort of, you know, so 1990, right? Um, and now it seems like ESAs are the new standard. So tell us, what exactly is an ESA? Yeah, so it's probably the easiest way to think of ESAs is in relations to vouchers. So if people are familiar with vouchers, a voucher is just a coupon, right? Just like if you get a voucher to, I don't go to the movies or something, you can exchange this thing for one education, right? You can take it to a school and, and do it in lieu of tuition. What an ESA is, is taking that money and rather, rather than saying you have to spend it all in one place, it places it in a flexible use spending account where you can subdivide that money as you wish amongst approved educational providers. So conceivably is education savings account, right? Like exactly. Yeah. Right. It's like, think of it like if many people who are listening probably have a health savings account, money gets put in there. You can spend it on some things and not others. You go to CVS and you want to buy Advil, you can get it. If you want to buy a fifth of Jack Daniels, like you could at one in Missouri, um, uh, you can't spend your money on that. And so an, an ESA functions in that way. 
And, you know, just practically speaking, how do these work? I mean, how much money are we talking about? I'm sure it, it varies from state to state. But I mean, is this at par with public school spending per student or, you know, how much money do these typically have? Generally speaking, I would say as a rule of thumb, it would probably be about between half and like two thirds to three quarters of public school spending. Um, if we think about where public schools get their money, it's a mix of local, state, and federal dollars. Generally speaking, voucher programs or ESA programs are the state bit. So the local dollars stay, the federal dollars generally stay. The the bit that can actually move is is the state amount. So depending on your state is and how your state funding formula works and how all of those things add up, that's kind of the part that we're talking about. And and frankly, even in most places, you don't even get a hundred percent of the state money. Sometimes it's like ninety percent of of what the state pays because the thought is leave ten percent or so for the fixed costs of the public schools the kids are leaving. Um, but that's roughly what we're generally talking about: the state contribution following the child. Gotcha. And Mike, where's this idea come from? Right. I mean, for a long time, it was vouchers. Right. And you, you could say vouchers and everybody knew what you meant. Now it's ESAs. Um, I mean, I can't imagine folks were like, let's come up with something more complicated that we have to educate <laughs> the public about. So you know, where'd this idea come from? You know, there were a few white papers that were written. I want to say one was written by like the Goldwater Institute, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. Um, one was actually written for Ed Choice, if memory serves me correct. Um, but, you know, I think part of the issue was actually trying to learn from higher education, because in some ways we have higher education vouchers in America, like a Pell Grant is just a voucher, right? You can take somewhere. Um, and while those things have been great and have expanded opportunity for people to attend colleges. Um, they have created problems, right? And one of which is that like, if you know, everyone's going to get a Pell Grant of $5,000, right? I don't even know what they're up to now. Shows I've been long enough out of college that I don't remember what these numbers are, which I'm not happy about. But, um, you know, we saw colleges just like increase their tuition with a, to a commensurate amount, right? Like if you get 5,000, well, Turns out if everybody's got it, we can just raise raise tuition another five grand or whatever. Part of the idea of ESAs is to make parents or sort of incentivize parents to be more discerning consumers, not just on educational quality, but also on price. Uh, the thought is, you know, if you have a voucher or even think if you're choosing a charter school or a magnet school or some sort of open enrollment school, like you don't really care how much money they're spending. Because you're just trying to pick the best school or the school that, that you like the most. Um, but if you actually are sort of forced to look at their tuition and say, oh, hey, these two schools are roughly similar to one another, but this one is $1,000 a year cheaper. If I keep that $1,000 and can spend it on tutoring or educational technologies or all sorts of other things, it actually puts incentives in the system to try and kind of bend the cost curve down as well. Um, so I think it, it, the idea was to try and sort of learn from vouchers and take the things that were good about them, because frankly, you can use an ESA like a voucher if you want to. You can spend all the money in the same place. But it's like, well, how do we take this idea and make some improvements to it? So, Mike, this is going to be an easy question right down the middle because there's only, you know, what, uh, about 10 programs. So uh, what kids are eligible for it? I'm sure it varies by program, but I mean, generally speaking, how has the eligibility for ESAs developed? I'm assuming it's not universally available 
to all students in all these programs. Yeah. So initially what we saw were um, a sort of smattering of different ways of limiting who was participating. So the clearest one was income limits. Right. So I think like the DC Opportunity Scholarship, like the voucher in DC, was a great example of this, where you were just capped at, at you know, at family income rates and usually with some percentage of the federal poverty line, some some multiple of that usually. Um, so that was one was just income limits. Um, another way in which they've been limited is your zoned public school. So if you were zoned for a quote unquote failing school, so if it was, you know, whatever your state's accountability system was, if your public school scored poorly on that, um, that could that could get you eligible for the program. Another one, and I think that where a lot of this built off of were specifically for students with special needs. Um, and I think, frankly, you know, as much as I was just talking about sort of bending the cost curve as as part of the motivation for ESAs, it was actually, I think, a lot of the experience of special education parents who realized that like who so many of them had to cobble together an education for their child from different providers because there was no one that did everything that their child needed. And it was like, man, I just get this big chunk of money, but I can only spend it in one place. If I could divide it up, I could give it to other folks. So I think students with special needs was was clearly part of that as well. And so what I think we've seen over time, you know, and take a state like Indiana, um, you just saw kind of the income limit to their voucher just sort of grow and grow because like a whole bunch of people got into it and loved it and thought it was great. And the people like slightly above that income was like, hey, hey, can we get in on this? Um, and so it just sort of slowly moved up to a point where I think in the last year now it's, what is it, four times the poverty line or something? So something like 98% of, of people in Indiana. But it was that was over the course of 10 or 12 years they worked up that way. And I think that's been similar in a lot of other places where every couple of years you either bump the income limit up or you um, expand the the set of people that are eligible. So some of it was like, we're going to add foster kids or we're going to add kids of military families or we're going to add kids who've been the victims of bullying. So slowly but surely expanding that until eventually something like last year happens where it's like, well, we could keep adding these groups or we could just say everyone can participate. And that's what a lot of states chose to do. So my next question is a particular one, because what you've just described is how the population of folks using these programs has grown. Right. But last year, we didn't only see the population continue to grow. And as you said, most of this is sort of an expansion in the existing programs. But last year, we saw a bunch of programs expanded either in their eligibility or new programs. And it seems like there was sort of like a legislative dam that broke, right? It seems like there's just a lot more interest in these programs and that, you know, if history is any indicator, then over the next several years, those programs are going to populate up and that almost million student number that you put up at the front is going to grow. So, What's behind that legislative dam that broke this year, if I'm characterizing this correct? Yeah, no, I think that's right. The pandemic, right? I mean, I think, you know, I've been spending time in state houses for years um, listening to these bills get debated and discussed. And um, and I think that so often a lot of the pitch to it before was sort of a lot of those populations that I was talking about. We know low-income kids are stuck in bad schools, or we think students with special needs are not having their needs met, or we know that you know our accountability system is saying that these schools are failing. We have an obligation to these kids. We should give them you know better options. But I think that fundamentally the pandemic sort of so deeply affected so many people. People who even thought that their, you know, they they thought that their public schools were more responsive to their needs than they turned out to actually be. 
I think the the closure, you know, again, a lot of the stuff that you tracked, like the rolling closures that took place, the quarantine procedures, the poor communication that took place kind of around all of that, um, all of the, the sort of political stuff that we saw with teachers unions kind of like holding schools hostage to try and extract more money. Um, and frankly, like I just remember from being involved in a lot of the like thinking back to some of the the legislative sessions that I heard, like overwhelmingly what I heard was sort of a frustration from a lot of legislators. Cause think of all that COVID money that came in. And we remember like, it wasn't just the COVID education money, but like there was tons of money that went to like state and local governments that allowed all this stuff to happen. And I just remember being in these sessions and, and the legislators being like, Hey, like, You've been telling us that we we need to give you a bunch more money for years. And this is sort of the, the the representatives of the traditional public schools. And like we've been doing that and the schools are still closed. And wait a second. Hey, I'm sorry from, you know, uh, our, our lady of the lake. Can you come up and, and testify? Yeah. Are you open? <laughs> like, yeah, we're, we're, we're open. We've been open the whole time. It's like, so why are we giving you all money when you're closed and you're open? So I think like a lot of that frustration started to to boil up over time. Um, both on the parent side where it was like, these schools don't seem to be responsive to the needs of my child. There seem to be these bigger political forces at play that I don't really want to participate in. Um, and there was a, just like a frustration on the part of a lot of legislators that are just like, guy, we send you all a lot of money. Um, and you don't really seem to be wanting to have your schools be open <laughs> or doing those things. So I think that, that definitely played a big role in it. And as far as the opposition to these programs, I mean, you know, I can totally understand folks who are going to say, well, we need to keep public school funding up and these programs are going to steal money from public schools because it's state dollars that doesn't end up in the public schools. But what has been the nature of opposition to it? Because I can't imagine that's the whole opposition to it. I imagine that in some of these red states where the attitude towards school choice is probably good, you're also going to run into some folks in some rural places that are like, well, you know, school choice may not work for us because we only got one school. Um, But what's the opposition tended to look like? And maybe has it changed? I think the opposition has changed a bit. I've always been sort of interested in the a lot of the sort of rural opposition that we hear from people where they say we don't have any choices for these kids to take. But if you institute these programs, our public schools will be destroyed because everyone will leave. Like, I don't think both of those things can be true at the same time. Um, But that you have heard versions of both sides of those arguments. So one of them, which, again, is not necessarily a ringing endorsement of your schools, has been kids will leave. Um, there's a belief that, you know, the best kids, the quote unquote, best kids will leave. The public schools will be left with everyone else. Um, and that will make those schools, the schools that, uh, children are left behind and much worse off, which I should be fair. I'm sort of speaking pejoratively about it, but I think that's a perfectly legitimate concern. Like if it were true that these voucher programs just took the sort of best and brightest and most motivated kids and siloed them off, um, I think we would have to, I don't, I still don't think there would necessarily be a bad idea, but I think there would be definitely need to be some sort of compensatory things to take place to try and, to try and, um, fix that. So, so I think that's part of it, right? The sort of what's going to happen to public schools. And I think scaremongering about how these things will destroy public schools. I mean, a lot of it has, as you pointed out, is just a money thing, um, that public schools will get less money. They will take money from us. We'll have to close buildings. We'll have to fire teachers. We won't be able to have a football program. Um, we'll have to, you know, no marching band or the play or any of that stuff. So I think that's been there. Um, and look, I think another one, 
has been just the sort of more like community or even like the democracy argument that these are public schools. They answer to the public. You are going to be sending kids to these unaccountable private schools where they don't have the same checks and balances that our public schools do. And I think the argument to a sort of more fiscally conservative person is, well, look, public schools have these checks and balances. You can review their budgets. We we give them tests and we see all the results of that. That's how we know our money is being spent. And this is now going to this completely sort of black box area. Um, and you could risk, you know, just uh, wasting all of that money. And um, has there been evidence that you've seen that's concerning in some states where there is a really robust private school choice set of programs like Florida has a pretty robust set of programs at this point um, where there's been some pretty transparent erosion of public school funding. You know, have we seen this? Is there blood on the track somewhere? No, I mean, like part of it is a kind of classic like economic stocks and flow question, because oftentimes when we hear this discussion about quote unquote, taking money from public schools, um, what's left off the ledger, right? Like we think about it from like accounting, right? You have income that comes in, but you also have costs. <laughs> and you think of how those two balance each other out because people say, oh, well, like if we have fewer kids, we'll have less income coming in. We'll get less revenue, whatever. Well, you'll also have fewer kids to educate, right? So it will bring down the expense side as well. So look, I don't doubt that in some places, the top line, the kind of stock number has gone down. We are spending less money this year than we spent last year or two years ago because we have fewer students. Um, but looked at per pupil because you know the money is going out commensurate with the children that are leaving, that's where I just don't see evidence of this financial hit. Now, look, this is not my exact area of expertise. I direct everyone, my colleague, Marty Lucan. There's a whole FREC, which is a center within EdChoice that just looks at the fiscal effects and research on choice. I think that's what FREC or fiscal research and man, that's bad that I don't know exactly what it means, but it's FREC, it's EdChoice, it's Marty Lucan, and he's studied all of these programs to look at the fiscal effects of all of them. And my best read of the copious amounts of research that he has done is that these programs have not really represented a serious financial strain on traditional public schools. So there's one other big line of schooling and choice, and that's charter schools, right? And charter schools, man, for decades were just like the darling of the choice world. But I mean, I, I'm not saying that charters have done poorly or whatever, but it does seem that they're not quite as fresh as a sector as they once were. How do you um, just if you take the temperature of states right now on charter schools, where do you see that relative to private school choice and why? Look, I think I think the why sort of proceeds. It's too hard to start one. It's too hard. It's it's really hard to start a charter school now. I mean, I think that over the 20 or 30 years that this has existed, these barriers have been brought up where if you want to start a new charter school, I mean, massive applications that you have to complete, um, various levels of people that you have to get to sign off on it that all have their own kind of motivations and things that they're looking for and whatever. And so when we think of, hey, we need a more nimble, agile, smaller, whatever, all of these things that people seem to be taking out of the pandemic where it's like, we're more interested in micro schools and like hybrid schools or, you know, again, just any more sort of flexible things. Charter schools are honestly not that well tooled for that. 
they maybe were at one time. And I think this is like an introspection that the charter school movement needs to continue to think about, which is like, are we as agile as we used to be? Are we as nimble as we used to be? And look, and and I want to be clear. I get where the charter people are coming from. If you grant an organization a charter, that's millions of taxpayer dollars. That's adults, you know, staff that's being hired. That's hundreds of children potentially in some of these times that are getting there. So you want to make sure that you're getting those decisions right. But you know, a lot of these private schools and stuff that are starting are starting very small. So the risk is quite low. It's not a ton of money. It's not a ton of adults. It's not a ton of kids. And we're going to have a couple grades in a church basement or something. And then if we meet with success, we'll, we'll grow. So I think that's been the kind of issue um, related to it, is that the charter schools have become more and more like the thing that they were created to replace. Um, they're functioning more like traditional public schools. Um, so I think it's just something that the charter movement, I'm, and look, I'm like ridiculously pro charter school. I think they're awesome. They were in, an incredibly important innovation and there's so many awesome charter schools that are out there. I mean, they completely changed the nature of Kansas city, my hometown. Um, I think f- for the better, for the good. Um, but you know, 30 years in or well, however long it's been, I think they need to have a good look in the mirror about, are we still sort of staying true to what, what we're trying to do? And are we kind of meeting the moment with the same sort of nimble, agile, schooling that it seems like the moment is calling for. So next to charter schools, the other thing to consider, and particularly during the pandemic, is homeschools. And homeschooling has really taken off. Pretty hard to get numbers on this stuff that you can take down to bedrock. But nonetheless, it's pretty nuts what's gone on over the pandemic in terms of homeschool growth. Uh, Can you tell me how that interfaces with these ESAs? Because when you have vouchers, right, the homeschool thing is a pretty different kettle of fish. What about with ESAs? Yes. Briefly before answering that, for those who are interested in data on homeschooling, just I think in the last week or two, Angela Watson at Johns Hopkins has launched this whole homeschool hub where insofar as data exists, she has done yeoman's work trying to get all of that in in one place. So some states, you you know, it's got a great map of America and you click in some states, it's like, well, the data is not that great. I can tell you just numbers wise, my colleague Colin Ritter did a blog post for EdChoice last week where he looked at just total enrollment in America. Again, using the best sources that we have, not all of them are perfect, but we look at total number of students, K-12 students in America, 74.6 attend a traditional public school. 4.9% are in a magnet school and 6.6% are in charter schools. When it comes to private schools, um, 6.8% of American school students attend private schools basically on their own payment, not participating in a school choice program. Um, But 6.8% are sort of traditional private school students. 1.9% of U.S. students are in an educational choice program, like a private school choice program. And then uh, 4.7% of students are homeschooled. So again, using the, the, I think the sort of best data that we have, that is the estimate right now, which is big. I mean, I think previous to the you know last four or five years i think it was sort of guessed between around i think one and two one to two maybe two and a half percent so we see probably at least a doubling of the homeschool population over the course of um of the last uh just couple of years and you asked me a question that i got so deep into my data i actually no, forgot I, what it was. I love that distribution uh but of those homeschoolers right like mm. i was just saying 
in the voucher yes. era of private school choice, we were like, well, you know, they just don't use this. But with ESAs, that's not necessarily the case. Yeah. So uh, and frankly, a lot of homeschoolers were hostile to vouchers. When in some cases oppose vouchers um, because they were saying, listen, we want nothing to do with the government. We want to be left on our own. Leave us alone. We don't want anything to do with any of this sort of stuff. So um, but you're right. Um, ESAs are definitely um, something that that homeschoolers are at least more amenable to. Some are still saying we don't want any of this. We're still going to do our own thing. And some I think one of these emerging areas of of lawmaking and of regulatory stuff is like how do we sort of classify students in the law, right? Because we've had this idea of like what a traditional public school student is, what a private school student is, what a homeschool student is. But, you know, like a child participating in an ESA kind of crosses, could conceivably cross a lot of those boundaries. So they could be schooled from home for part of the time. They could be going to a private school for part of the time. You know, I think ideally it'd be great if they could go to a public school part of the time, you know, if they, if public schools kind of want to play ball with a lot of this stuff. So I think a lot of these terms actually that we use are really going to be in flux. And like what we think of as a homeschooled student, because there always was like, you know, even for the last few years, like if someone goes to an online school, like are they homeschooled? Well, they're schooled at home, but they're technically enrolled in, you know, a cyber charter school or whatever, the or distance learning from their school district. So it was already kind of starting to blur. And I think that that's just going to continue to happen. We're not like a student that participates in an ESA other than an ESA student. We don't really have like a good term to describe what exactly they are, what they're doing. Indeed. Well, Mike, every episode we run a section called Grade It. You were a teacher. You know how to do this. Are you ready? I am. Uh, the quality of education surveys. I would say a B plus. I mean, I think they're pretty good. We do a lot of surveying and things, but you know, you're limited by a bit of sort of social desires desirability bias. And look, you wanna you want to um, square them with people's actual behavior. But I think by and large, they're pretty good. I say B plus. Being involved in American education policy debates as an expat. <laughs> uh, uh, this is very narrow casted to me. The inside joke for everyone is that I live in Ireland and have for several years now. Um, personally, again, just from the last question, from my revealed preference versus just my stated preference, I would give it an A. Um, uh, I think it's actually been very good to have a little bit to have two things. One is a little bit of distance from things that are happening. I'm not nearly as tied into the like day to day up and down, which I think by and large actually serves to distract us more than illuminate anything for us. And B, um, living in Europe, uh, I have lots of other systems that I'm looking at. I have the, you know, the schooling system that's here. My wife's a teacher, my daughter's in school. So like I can make comparisons quite easily to what's happening. Um, uh, getting to know educators that are here and, 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 and obviously on the news and everything, seeing what's going on in other places. So I think having some of those comparative things have been very good for me. Like, well, we do this a particular way, but somebody else does it differently. So I think a bit of distance and a bit of comparativeness is good. I will add one bit though. Um, what has been most difficult professionally for me? I live in a very beautiful part of a very beautiful country. I live kind of by the sea. Um, and 
as someone who writes a lot and who writes op-eds and, you know, engages on social media less and less, but sort of, sort of does, you know, the best thing that you can have for that is something that annoys you, right? Some, somebody says something wrong. I need to write something in response to that or some figures out there that's wrong. The problem when I live in this very beautiful place is sometimes I'll see something like that and then I'll just go like th- for a walk, like, oh, and the, the waves are gently lapping and, uh, we have the harbor seals coming in or some dolphins jumping or whatever, or a heron flies down and catches a fish out of the water. And I'm like, you know what? I don't really care. <laughs> like, you know, you know, I'm just going to let them have it. Yeah. You know what? You know, Randy Weingarten said something that annoyed me. She can have it. That's cool, man. I'm, I'm, I'm good. So I've, I've had to sort of still stay in it. And I think maybe the tenor and tone of my writing has changed. I would generally like to think, um, for the good, but it has been an interesting professional development. The Irish salve to your uh, bruised right? soul is, yeah. is, is making you less productive. Fair enough. Um, single sex schools. A. Um, I'm, I would say I'm a, I'm a pretty big proponent. I'm the product of one. I went to high school in a single sex school. Um, uh, Ireland is a country I think has disproportionately the most single sex schools of potentially any um, – any country on earth. Um, and I think they're a good thing. I taught, to be fair, I taught in co-ed schools. Um, I think maybe some of these things will be controversial. I wasn't quite expecting to go into this area, but these are good questions to try and draw things out that you wouldn't normally uh, say. But look, I, so I taught ninth and 10th grade. And I think like ninth and 10th grade boys and girls are in two different places, right? Like they were just not, and I was an English teacher and like, so getting kids to like engage with text and things like we're just two two different areas. And if I could have separated out the boys and the girls, I think we could have had an each of us could have had an awesome and different time. Um, so I think doing that like as a whole is a good thing. I'm, I'm quite pro. I give them an A. All right. The state of private school choice in 2024. Um, I would say a B. Um, obviously there's been like a tremendous amount of growth, but it's been from a very low level. Um, there are still way more people who would like to send their kids to, to private school than are able to our annual schooling in America poll says anywhere between 30 and 40% of Americans, if they could, would like to send their kids to private school. Um, 2% are now doing that as part of an educational choice program. It's awesome. That's going to grow. It may double or triple in the next few years, but there's still a whole lot of unmet demand that we got to keep working to meet. The state of Catholic schools in the U.S. in 2024. Um, I would say a C, but moving moving in the the direction again. It's a sort of stocks and flows thing. Very far down from what their peak was. I mean, so if you were asking me this question in 1960, I'd give you an A, probably. Um, though there were probably some structural issues that they should have foreseen potentially. Um, I think that we. I hope. Because I'm, I'm also quite uh, bullish and, and supportive of Catholic schools. Um, I hope we've kind of hit the bottom um, as far as enrollment, as far as funding, as far as a lot of other issues that were going on in Catholic schools, and they're trending upward. But it's hard not to see if we're if we're looking at the history over the course of the last 150 years or so. It's hard not to see that we're at a sort of lower point than we would definitely like to see them. All right this this is out there, but it's a setup question. Bars in America. Oh, bars in America. Oh, this is going to this is going to people are not going to like this. Um, a D. I'm going to give D. them a D. D. 
Here, I'm going to tell you why. I'm going to tell you exactly why. I was I was home in Kansas City for, for Christmas. I went to what we in Ireland would call like my local like a bar that I was going to. I literally, I think, went in the first time when I was maybe 10 years old to have like a hot dog with my dad while we watched a Royals game. So I've been going to this bar for 30 years now um, and just to meet some friends. And when I went in there and just got a table, uh, there were probably like 400 TVs going, like all showing the same football game. Like there didn't, we could see, like we didn't need all of them. So we're just awash in this neon light. And then starting at like eight o'clock, the music was so loud. And this was just a bar. There wasn't like a dance floor or anything. It was just music to play while people are trying to talk to one another. So we're all just trying to sit at a table, talk. And this is what literally everyone else in this bar, we're all sitting at tables shouting at each other. And I'm like, what are we doing, guys? Just turn the music down because this isn't, I would totally get if this was like a dance bar or something else, like, but this is like, we're just sitting around. Some people are eating. Why is this music so loud? So I think Americans have forgotten the purpose of bars, which is they are places to go to relax. They should be a relaxing place when you go in. And if you're all like hyped up from music and televisions and stuff, it does the exact opposite of what they should do. So I'm going to give them a D with the hopes that they improve as a result of that. And and you knew this was coming. So here it is. Irish pubs. I mean, a I mean, clearly, come on, guys. Come on. What are we talking about here? A few creamy pints of Guinness, a fire. There's a great. It's a great sort of Irish phrase you'll ask now, especially in the winter, if you're going to tuck into a pub somewhere and someone will ask you about it because of the way the Irish language works, like nouns and verbs and things are in different order. So you'll always, someone will ask the question, they'll say, is the fire after lighting? Because the fire after lighting, which means have they lit the fire in the little hearth of the pub? It's like, yes, the fire, yeah, fires after lighting. All right, we're tucking in creamy pints. Um, Yeah, there's nothing better. There's are far better, far few, few places that are better than that. Indeed. All right, Mike, thanks for uh, giving us grades on Grade It. I want to turn to some of your writing that you've done on implementation on on private schools, right? Because we spent a lot of the first half like, man, this has really grown. There's lots of promise here. Um, It's not all, you know, like roses and rainbows, right? I mean, there's some serious challenges ahead for private school choice. If you were going to give folks, you know, a quick summary of your top couple of concerns or things that we should be concerned about as these things do grow, what would you tell us? I would say that my primary concern has to do with the platforms that are being used to make all of this stuff work, right? <laughs> we could talk about ESA programs. They create these flexible use spending accounts. Like there's like administration that needs to to take place there and government money needs to go into it. So there's whatever gov tech and fintech and these things that actually have to happen to make all of this stuff work. And different States have tried different things at times. You know, I think in the early days of Arizona, people were like faxing in receipts or something, which obviously for a very small program, not a big deal, very difficult as it gets bigger. If you want to directly administer these things again, it could require states hiring like dozens and dozens of bureaucrats to review proposals, but even or to review spending. Um, but even then, it's like at some point, you got to probably hire somebody to do this. And so there have been some for-profit companies that have gotten in the space to try and create these platforms. There are some nonprofit ones. And, you know, I think just not enough time has necessarily happened yet to know 
how great or how poorly they're doing. Uh, so I'm not there to necessarily cast judgment on any of them, but just to say like, this is an in- incredibly important point because this is how parents are going to get onboarded. This is how people are going to get paid. This is how they're going to know what's, what's eligible and what isn't. Um, so that's an incredibly consequential decision. It's an incredibly consequential bit of tech that needs to be built there. So, um, and states are taking different approaches, right? Some are directly administering it. Some are, they're going with different providers. You have to imagine there may be some that are going to do this better than others will. So I think that's definitely a key point of implementation that's happening right off the bat that will be incredibly consequential to the to the outcomes of, of what happens there. And then further down the line, right? Rules and regulations are being drafted. If you think about it, we say, oh, education savings account, it's like a health savings account. So obviously educational purchases are allowed, but non-educational purchases aren't. Well, we're going to have to define all of that stuff. And statute generally puts some general definitions, but it's rulemaking and regulations that actually um, decide. And there've already been some, I can't remember what state that it was, like some initial stuff came out where it was like, you know, for educational technology, laptops were allowed, but chargers weren't. Right. Because like whatever, for whatever bureaucratic reasons. Well, it turns out like, again, if that mistake happens, like that could be a big deal. Um, A lot of the kind of controversy that's come out around, you know, some of these purchases, you know, people bought trampolines or they bought gym equipment or something with their money. Um, the, The argument is usually made. Well, you can purchase these things if they are aligned to a curriculum. Right. So they're aligned to a phys ed curriculum and you need just like you might need a basketball, like you might need a trampoline or you might need a weight set or whatever it is. Well, what's a curriculum? Does a curriculum have to come from an established provider? If you are able to use your ESA dollars to like pay a personal trainer to develop a program for your kid, that seems to me to be vastly superior. But like, how does that qualify? So a lot of those definitions and um, and, and decisions are also going to be hugely consequential, right? So you can start to see how these things start to proliferate out and sort of grow like mushrooms everywhere where it's like, wow, there's a lot of really important decisions that, that have to be made and debated and discussed. Yeah, and I can certainly see that being particularly nasty across the states, right? The legislature has one intent. And the folks and the agencies that actually have to put these things together and make these calls, well, all those calls aren't super easy to make, right? It's not necessarily easy to say, uh, are basketballs? Welcome to the Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education yeah, and policy think about podcast it, if you're, from if the you're American Enterprise Institute. In whatever Over state, the last year and a half, like what a number of states have fired, changed the choice right? landscape. Is it by enacting if you new allowed in education you know, savings If you account. tell a student, or ESAs, no, actually, you're not eligible. What are these programs? Form, fill How do they work? Three fifty seven. How do they affect the choice landscape so more broadly? You don't allow what in a student who was otherwise eligible to discuss these questions and more. I invited Mike McShane allow in a student. And Mike you McShane give them is the seven, eight, of ten thousand of taxpayers' dollars in an ESA the account, which they then go and spend if they weren't supposed to be in there. On education like, policy. you're going to probably get and fired for the second one. So people are going to be much more gun shy. And I think the same thing is true for like approving purchases. Policy. Are you going to get fired this June, for like denying Mike will be a, a class a purchase on education that you otherwise shouldn't have? Probably not. Honors Could you get fired for a fully funded a purchase that you shouldn't have? Maybe. For more information on how the incentives are being drawn towards you, much more careful. Mike McShane, much more likely to, the to say card. no, to slow Sin? things down, know. to gum uh, up the maybe. works. And I think what you could, what what you risk is having just like tons and tons of frustrated parents. Parents, like, wait a second, you guys said I could get in this program, but 
the website's clunky. I'm not getting onboarded well. All these forms are really difficult to fill out. And then once I actually get to stuff, it doesn't have the stuff that I want. These people I that I want aren't going to get paid. So a lot of these just like boring logistical picayune details um, could be what decides whether these things work or not. You know. So looking forward, look, these programs in my mind have a, a lot of promise, but there's some peril about the certainty on them, right? Like this is obviously true for parents. If parents are like, well, that ESA thing may work out, but it may go down in a year. So we're not going to get on board. Certainly if schools are like, hey, this is a great new avenue for us to, oh no, it's going to go away. So how robust are these programs, do you think, to challenges? Because there's frequently have been challenges to voucher programs and so forth. Um, are these programs likely to be durable over the long term or are, are they sort of up in the air? So I think there's sort of two ways of answering that question. One is like legal challenges and one are sort of, if you want to call them like democratic challenges. Legal challenges, I think we're doing okay. I think that years of work done by folks like the Institute for Justice, which whose kind of ed choice or school choice practice is now merged with ed choice, my colleagues at ed choice, lots of people that have been in this sort of movement, you know, legislators were really good at sort of pre-clearing their bill, running it by lawyers to say, is this going to pass constitutional muster? You know, previous generations of things, legislators just heard about something, drafted a bill, they got knocked down. That prog that you know over the course of the last five or ten years, I think people got much better at that and making sure there were kind of kind of some classic constitutional issues that you know smart um, drafting could could you know cope with, and I think they did that. So I'm not really worried on the legal front. We also have great lawyers who litigate these things, and I would try some. I'm going to try and stay on the right side of the law for all of my life. But if I was ever on the wrong side, I would. These would be the first people that I would call because I think they so would. As far as getting struck down in the courts, pretty safe. Pretty safe. Now, listen, democracy, if we've watched anything in America over the course of the last 20 or 30 years, predicting a straight line uh, uh, from here to anywhere is unlikely. Um, and this is why, look, I think some of this was there was a big kerfuffle and I think it was kind of embedded in one of the questions you asked earlier. Is this a red state thing? Is this a blue state thing? Um, you know, red states don't stay red states forever. Blue states don't stay blue states forever. Um, governor's mansions change. Legislatures change. I mean, we're seeing in Arizona, right? Like the governor's mansion changed and a big uh, Ed Choice opponent um, be, you know, is governor right now is going to do her darndest to try and you know kill these programs. This is why it's incredibly important to build a diverse coalition supporting these programs. I understand at any given time trying to press your advantage in particular places with particular arguments to particular people. I would never say like tell everyone the same thing and think it's going to work for everyone. No, but over the long term, trying to diversify the people that support this so that if the governor's mansion changes, and I think like, look, a case study that has been very good for this just broadly is in a state like Florida. It's still not maybe like if we look at the legislators that support it, but if you look at institutions in civil society, voters, all of these people, a very broad swath of Floridians support that program. I am not worried about those programs going away. I think that they have sort of reached a critical mass of enough different types of people that are either directly benefiting from the program or know people that are benefiting from the program. That's that's sort of what's happening. But um, if programs sort of stay small or stay only part of one part of the political coalition or only in some places and not others or some students and not others, those are much more politically vulnerable over time. 
So, Mike, we're actually having a debate later this month, and I'll issue further announcements in later episodes, uh, between two sets of Democrats. And the motion in the debate is, fellow Democrats, you should support ESAs. So nice. we're going to have that as a competitive debate. We'll see if we can't get some I love of it. That's great. questions taken on from a somewhat different angle. Um, what about religious schools? Right. So we always hear something about religious schools. We heard about in Oklahoma, there's this push for religious charter schools, which I don't personally think is going anywhere. But when we think about these ESAs and religious schools, there's a good bit of overlap, right? I mean, I'm assuming that a healthy proportion of ESA recipients are going to use them at religious schools. But you've also said, hey, in the courts, we should be good. Just help me with those contours. How frequently are ESAs used for religious schools? And does it matter? Yeah, that's a good question. I actually don't know like the usage data. That would be actually a very interesting research question that I will come back to this. Or maybe someone will beat us to it. Someone listening to this podcast, like that would be very interesting to see the proportion that goes to religious schools. Look, there's actually a kind of interesting thing here, right? Because, you know, in some ways, obviously religious schools, and again, I come from kind of a Catholic school background and others, obviously very supportive of things like vouchers over time, because it's like, hey, our schools are here. Um, we operate inexpensively. That voucher is more than enough money for us. Um, let's, you know, let's kick the tires and light the fires. Like this is awesome. Um, but you know, ESAs, part of what they're doing is also kind of challenging traditional notions of schools and like saying, you know, maybe we want to be more flexible. Maybe we want to be others. And a lot of private schools, not just religious schools, but a lot of kind of established private schools are of the more traditional model. So I wouldn't doubt that, you know, if there are private school leaders listening to this or religious school leaders listening to this, they're kind of skeptical of like, well, ESA is like, I don't know if that's actually the best way to do it. Like, I think you should spend all your money here because we've we've covered the waterfront enough um, and cobbling together an education from other people is not a great idea. So there's that's like this interesting contour in it is that maybe over time, you know, some of these sort of understandings of it will be between people who operate traditional five day a week, one-stop shop schools and people who are offering like individual courses or therapies or tutoring or, or whatever. Um, but I think, you know, step up for students released last year, a really interesting study into, um, Catholic schooling in particular in Florida. And it seems like from, from my best recollection of that research is that like, this has been the first thing that has turned around enrollment in Catholic schools kind of like ever, <laughs> right? Um, Catholic school has been on a pretty steady decline um, just because of changing demographics and the changing human capital model and yada, yada, yada. Um, and so I think this actually has a tremendous opportunity to help that sector. Um, and I imagine that will be true of other religious school sectors um, as well. So I think, look, I think it, it, it will definitely give more people who want to take advantage of that option, the, the, the option, but it's also like, it might also light a bit of a fire underneath them and, and make them think about innovating. Maybe they want to offer some one-off courses. Maybe they want to sort of offer a hybrid enrollment option. Maybe they want to do something online um, because they'll realize that a lot of the folks that are growing in the future are being even more flexible than they are. Mike, there's been concerns in years past, particularly from the voucher era, on the part of school operators and religious school operators where they're saying, you know, if you're going to pass this voucher, you have strings attached to it, strings that we may not object to now, but may object to three years down the line. So the question about, you know, if government 
subsidies come, so do government strings, and this is a problem. Is that less of a problem with ESAs because the money goes through the parents, or is that something that current operators of religious schools or private schools may need to be wary of? Well, I think it's something they should always be wary of, right? I think generally operating off the supposition that there is no such thing as a free lunch is just a good mantra <laughs> just kind of just to kind of go through go through life with. Um, and that by choosing to take money from someone, um, those people might either currently or in the future place some sort of restrictions on that. I think that's perfectly reasonable. And I think that schools should be vigilant about that and should be vocal about that and sort of all of those things. What I will say is that I think most both the kind of recent Supreme Court jurisprudence around religious liberty and others, and most of the bills that were drafted recently had very specific religious liberty language included in them to kind of preclude any regulations that might have to deal with the the religious nature or character of the schools. Now, listen, so so I think they're safe on that front. I know a lot of people are concerned about, hey, if we start taking these dollars, are we becoming a de facto public school? Will they tell us that we can no longer teach our faith? Are they going to tell us we have to you know, hire faculty who might disagree with the core tenets of our faith and how they live their lives or, or just their opinions or whatever? I don't think that's actually a problem. I think both the Supreme Court and the legislative text are on their side um, and, and they'll be OK. Um, but I do think um, – there could be sort of more administrative things, right? Like you may have to file some more paperwork than you otherwise would have. You may need to like report things, um, which schools are just going to have to decide whether that's worth it for them or not. I would have to imagine that in most cases, the juice is worth the squeeze there. Um, but I also, I will always respect people who say, Hey, we, we want to step outside of this. We don't want your money and we don't want to, <laughs> we don't want to do what you tell us. It's like, okay guys, fair enough. All right, Mike, forecast for us. What do you think are the biggest promise and biggest barriers that ESAs and private school choice face over the next five years? I mean, obviously, I think the biggest promise is parents, right? I work off the belief that parents know their kids best. And when they have the freedom to like find the educational environment that is best for their kid, they are going to do better than everyone else. They are not perfect. Parents are not perfect. Not every decision they make is going to be perfect. We are going to be bombarded with stories from, I think, a generally hostile media um, about all sorts of ridiculous purchases that are made and whatever. And if you sum them up and express them as a percentage of the total number of purchases that are made, they will be, you know, to a first approximation, zero. Um, so uh, we will be hearing the stories to the contrary. But um, but I just think that like and. In the work that I've been able to do, getting to talk to parents, going to events where parents are, they are so excited and they are so happy. And so many of them have such heartbreaking stories of the treatment that their children have have gotten, even in what we would consider, quote unquote, good schools. There's parents of children with special needs or parents of kids who got bullied or parents of kids who had any number of sort of issues come up that their schools just couldn't accommodate. And I think they're going to find environments where their kids can thrive. It's going to be good for them. It's going to be good for the parents. And I just think I'm just so I'm so excited for them. I'm excited. You know, I am lucky that like I was in a position when I lived in America that like I could have picked where my kid went to school. So I wasn't really that worried about it. I wasn't super stoked about necessarily having to pay for it, but I could have chose a charter school. I could have chosen a magnet school. I could have could, could have sent my kid to private school. Um, I'm so excited that so many millions more parents are going to get to do that, you know, that they're going to get to be in the same position. Um, I just think it's I think it's awesome. 
obviously I think the biggest risk are actually these boring, mundane details. So much of the the school choice movement, so much of the education reform movement is about big picture philosophy and and arguments and theory and big picture democracy, you know, like all of these things that we talk about. Like we're kind of past that, right? <laughs> Whether you like it or not, um, these bills got passed and now they're in the, uh, being implemented. And I think we just really have to, I think I wrote a piece like in the summer that was like school choice has to get boring. Like the school choice movement has to get boring. Um, and it's way more fun to get up and have, you know, big theoretical um, discussions and, and clash of these things. But actually these things are going to rise and fall based on small decisions made by, you know, some bureaucrats and some people that are in the room with them. And so making sure to be in those rooms or to understand what's happening. Um, I think that's the, the biggest risk and, and it's something we really need to be on the lookout for. Thanks for listening to The Report Card with Nat Malkus. And special thanks to our guest, Mike McShane. We'll include a link to some of Mike's work in the show notes. Remember, you can subscribe to The Report Card on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, take a minute to leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. As always, send us your comments, questions, or topic suggestions to ed.podcast at aei.org. That's all for this episode. I'm Nat Malkus.